Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 24 of the program which looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer over here and that's Grant McCarran over there. G'day Grant. Hey mate, how are you doing today? Not too bad. It's uh, We probably ought to start with a bit of an apology first up, mate. It has been at least three weeks since we popped the last episode out. Um, we wanted to oh, apologise. that long. Yeah. Oops, I didn't realise it got that long. Yeah, so uh, sorry about that folks. If you've been uh, wondering uh, what we've been doing, it's it has been a, a pretty hectic uh, Three weeks for us, and uh, on top of everything else, our work schedules have just clashed very badly, and we haven't been able to record. But we're uh, back into it today, so uh, without um, much more uh, chat, since we've uh, made you wait this long, we'll get right into it. Coming up this week, Grant, we're catching up with Saj Ahmed again in London. He's going to provide us with some of the latest business figures to do with the uh, the airline business on that side of the world. And uh, as always, uh, we like to look at that from the uh, the way that impacts us down here in this part of the world. As always, we've got our weekly wrap up of news and events, listener feedback, and much more. So it looks like we have a pretty packed program mate i think we ought to kick it off that sounds good to me okay first article we're going to cover this week concerns the uh, helicopter crash up there in queensland a robinson r44 and i'm sure you've seen the uh, photos on the uh, local news services by now this aircraft came to grief grant right on the top of a mountain ridge uh, with a rather severe drop yeah that's right uh there was approximately one kilometer drop from uh, off the side of the ridge where they la- uh, crashed. Uh, there's photos of the aircraft uh, on its side. Poor guys. Uh, apparently, uh, the media was saying it was uh, they were lucky to be alive. It was very full on and wow, wow. And the owners of the helicopter, the Caloundra-based training company Chopperline, they reckon the photos make it appear more dramatic than it actually was. Uh, they say it was uh, happened during a mountain flying familiarization exercise, hovering within about a meter of the ridge top, when it gently settled to the ground for unknown reasons, because the ground below the helicopter consisted of large boulders and uneven terrain the helicopter then rolled on its side remained intact the occupants then exited without injury it did look rather dramatic uh, from the pictures Uh, the uh, channel 7 news reported it like this Three men have been rescued from a mountaintop after surviving a helicopter crash yesterday. The Robinson 44 went down on a narrow ridge on Mount Barney on the New South Wales-Queensland border during a training flight. The alarm was raised when they issued a mayday call. Rescuers spotted the instructor and two student pilots sitting near the record wreckage. It is a one-kilometre drop from the top of the mountain. The helicopter is owned by former champion Ironman... Grant Kenny. Not that that should have any bearing on it, that it's owned by Grant Kenny, but Grant Kenny's uh, aviation company up there in Queensland, they do some pretty fantastic things, mate. Yeah, they do. They're uh, pretty supposed to be a pretty good training environment, and uh, they are gro- growing even in the uh, current pullback recession times. So, uh, yeah, they, they are supposed to be a pretty good crowd to go and train with for your helicopters. It'd be interesting to know, um, flying uh, obviously flying that in such close proximity to uh, some, some pretty mountainous terrain would have all sorts of uh, issues to to do with downdrafts and updrafts and all this sort of stuff. I wonder if that played to, uh, had much bearing on what happened here. According to one report, uh, apparently the pilot was quoted as saying he had some sort of mechanical problem and all he could do was put it down. Yeah. And uh, because the uneven terrain had just rolled over and splat. But yeah, when you're doing mountain training, you, you're in there learning how to, to land on the top of mountains, what to watch out for, looking out for your um, ridge lift and all this kind of stuff. So uh, they were very lucky. I still think they were very lucky. Yes, they, the guys are saying, okay, it was uh, not a huge issue and da 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 But uh, any time you can crash the aircraft and walk away, you're lucky. And as the saying goes, Grant, any landing you walk away from is a good one. And if you have a look at the picture here, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge drop down the side of that cliff there, and they are only metres away from the edge of it. So yeah, it makes yeah. for good news footage, and we'll, uh, we'll pop some links to that in the show notes. Yep, there's a, another article from the dailymail.co.uk, and that's got lots of photos in it, um, which 
show that, uh, yeah, lucky to walk away. Okay, mate, so we'll leave that one there and, we'll, and uh, we will move across now to uh, the subject of our good friends at Tiger Airways. Yes, Tiger Airways. Now, Grant, we were wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> I wasn't right. In our predictions uh, about uh, Tiger's IPO and how we thought that might go, it uh, seems here that, uh, Grant, it's been oversubscribed. Yeah, that's right. There's uh, more people were wanting to get shares than were officially available. This despite the uh, joint venture between Jetstar and AirAsia and despite Tiger in, in Australia losing uh, $50 million and a number of other aspects to Tiger's less than stellar results that have had a number of analysts saying it's not really that good an idea to invest in them. Well, well, there's been so much demand from the general from the general public and other other institutions that it's allowed the uh, current main uh, shareholders to dilute their shares somewhat and offload. For instance, Singapore Airlines has uh, reduced its holding to 33% of the airline. Temasek will dilute itself to 7%, and uh, the U.S. private equity firm Indigo Partners has also sold some of its, sh- its shares, bringing it down to 14.5%. And the Ryan family, yes, our good friends, the Ryan family, their investment vehicle. Ryan Asia has indicated it may use the float to sell down its stake to 7% as well. Now, that, all that's really interesting that everyone out there wants to get into it, and yet the main people who are holding shares are saying, well, now's a good time to get some money back and let's dilute our ownership a little. I wonder if this is a case of uh, opportunism here. They're saying here that the initial public offering puts uh, their shares at around $1.50 Singaporean dollars. Uh, that's about $1.17 Australian per share. Pretty low-cost shares. Maybe it's uh, just a lot of the uh, smaller investors trying to take advantage of that and hoping that... Uh, Everybody has their price when it comes to uh, travelling on air, on airliners. Well, maybe this is also just proving P.T. Barnum was right when he said way back in the early 1900s that there's a uh, sucker born every minute. Or the classic proverb from way back in the mid-1500s, a fool and his money are soon parted. Yeah, that's true. Well, Grant, they won't be getting any of my money anytime soon. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting there that uh, even though some of the major institutional shareholders might be pulling out there, that the, I wonder if they're getting a lot of um, smaller investors looking at it and saying, well, you know, those uh, really low-cost airlines, as unpopular as they often are, they never seem to have any trouble filling seats. Every passenger has their price, and it seems to me that as we've... I mean, you, you've called it the bus lines of the sky on more than one occasion, and uh, that, yep. that's pretty accurate. Just reading a bit further down this article here that we find in the Australian Business section by Steve Creddy, uh, <laughs> saying here that... <coughs> We haven't we haven't plugged Steve for a while, so yeah, that's true. That's uh, true. Well, it's actually saying here that uh, industry insiders uh, have said that the strong retail response was likely linked to a decision by Singapore Airlines and by Temasek to remain as in the airline as major shareholders. So uh, even though they're, as you say, diluting their uh, their shares, mm-hmm. obviously they're still the major shareholders there, and um, the Singapore government. I mean, you know, you couldn't find uh, a much better backer than that. True, true. They are hanging in there, so they were totally out. I don't think. It Everyone, anyone would stay in, but then if they were, if no one came in, then they wouldn't get any money at all, would they? Mm. So, you know, get a few, get a lot of people in, stay in, sell off a few, do a few more sell off, bit more sell off later, and see how it goes. And maybe they can actually get something back on their investment after having to write it all off. They really do need more aircraft, as we keep saying, at the risk of sounding like a broken record. Uh, just looking at this article here, you know, the the uh, Tiger Airways Group as a whole, and we're talking about Singapore and Australia and, and all over Asia in the areas they operate, they've only got 17 aircraft altogether. Um, they're, they're planning to add a further 51 over the next five years. So there you go. They, they're certainly, um, and it says, you know, they're setting themselves up as a major competitor to Jetstar and 
and uh, Air Asia. I don't know. I, I think Jetstar, particularly on their international routes, offers a, a would offer a better uh, level of service than Tiger Airways would. Well, that's that's what you'd think. So, as you pointed out, yes, I have called it the uh, bus route in the sky. So uh, that's a major path. There's always going to be a need for a bus lane. All right, mate, let's uh, move on to the next uh, subject that we've got here. Uh, a couple of articles that we found here on ABC News and also on the Sydney Morning Herald uh, website. And this concerns the issue of uh, self-service passport gates at Australia's major airports. Um, they want to bring them online here. The government is uh, keen to bring that technology on stream as quickly as possible, but there's a concern here in uh, an article by Monique Ross that uh, these passport gates may be easy to cheat. Yeah, that's right. They've, uh, they've put more than a million people through. The gates are actually, it's like a self-serve uh, passport customs immigration. You go through the uh, through these gateways, you uh, put your, or the Australian passports now have a smart chip in them. You put that in, it's got uh, the bi- biometric uh, information in it. The only information of a biometric nature it has is your photo, but it's got that stored and it compares, at the moment it uh, compares a photo it takes of you at the time with the one on your passport away it goes and it says whether you're close enough or not unfortunately they've had to set the tolerance rather high and so if you even look vaguely like the person whose passport is being used you've got a good chance of getting through uh, according to uh, Roger Clark a visiting fellow at the Australian National University he's saying that uh, during tests of the smart gate system a large group of people swapped passports and successfully made it through uh, 8 out of in out of 100 were incorrectly permitted through which is apparently Apparently, a large enough percentage that, uh, from a security perspective, that's pretty dreadful. Eight percent—that's a—that's a pretty big failure, right? I would have thought. Mind you, I wouldn't have any trouble with that, Grant, because I'm pretty sure there's nobody around who's remotely as good-looking as me. Well, there is that possibility, but hey, I know what I've looked like coming off a plane after a long-haul journey from one side of the U.S. to the other side of Australia. That's—that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a long day of travel, and you're not yeah. looking your best. I can assure you of that. Yeah, I'm Especially not. Uh, you've been in economy. Yeah, you uh, certainly do tend to look uh, somewhat more dishevelled at the uh, the exit and then you do at the entry end. The key thing here is that uh, Mr. Clark is saying he thinks the whole system is a bit of a Trojan horse and that he thinks that once they've fully implemented the system in a few years, they've got it installed everywhere and everyone's forced to use it. That's when they'll admit it actually doesn't work and that they know it's not going to work. There's some cluey people inside customs and he calls this out. He says that there's a lot of intelligent people in customs and immigration and intelligence agencies. Surprise, surprise. Sorry. He's calling out that maybe what they're doing is setting this thing up to fail and then saying look you can't rely on face recognition. We're going to have to go with full biometrics, including fingerprints, and we're going to have to have everyone's fingerprints in their passports just so you can cross the border. And he's a bit concerned about that because that then means the government has access to everyone's fingerprints. And if, if you've got a passport, they've got your fingerprints. Good Lord, mate. I hope nobody from the uh, American TSA is listening to that. Yeah, well, this could be interesting. This could be, remember the last episode we were, we were saying Australia is not quite like the US yet. We haven't got the TSA. Well, maybe we're doing one better. You know, when you look at the big picture it's probably uh, quite convenient for the uh, federal government here to be able to hide behind all of the uh, the goings on in the US with regard to security and uh, it wouldn't be the first time a political body has uh, tried to slip something through hopefully unnoticed. They have been trying to get those full body scanners uh, going for a long time. They're currently a voluntary thing and um, well, the last few times I've been flying I have uh, chosen not to volunteer to go through those things. Probably yep. to the great relief of the people doing the scan. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to watch the picture. Mm, that's right. <laughs> no, because there is, there is the situation that they they claim that they're okay health-wise, but uh, the Australians are waiting to hear feedback on a number of studies, including the impacts of frequent travellers who go through these machines quite often and what that may actually do to their body being exposed to this re- level of radiation, whether there is any, any potential OHS issues associated with it, as well as the whole factoring in the um, what's happening in the UK where kiddies aren't allowed to go through it because it violates child porn laws, things like that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where they go. They're saying that they don't store any pictures, but then reports have come out about the ones in the US having a mode that you can put it in where it does store pictures for testing. And you do raise the question of, well, okay, how are you going to verify that your staff are using it correctly unless you have someone standing over their shoulder looking at them? Because that's the classic thing. You store it all, you look at the results, you play it back very, very quickly, and you look to see anywhere they got it wrong or if someone contests why they were pulled up. I mean, you know, are they going to keep a history there just for that? It's not a great era that we're in here with, with regard to all this sort of security stuff. You know, in a way, I can understand the government's point of view on all these sorts of things. I mean, they have to be seen to be doing as well as practically doing is whatever they can to make it uh, as secure as, as possible to uh, fly on uh, large commercial aircraft around the country and around the world. On the other hand, it's a pretty fine line that they're walking on there. It's really a knife edge they're walking on there because at what point does it tip over the edge to where it just becomes such an unfriendly way to travel that yep. uh, people are going to stop using it? We've seen this with the low-cost carriers coming on stream in the last 10, 15 years around the world where a lot of people now that perhaps wouldn't have thought of flying before have all of a sudden flocked to the airlines are we going to upset these people to the point where you know we don't want to fly perhaps we'll get the train you know or something like that yeah well i know in many parts of the world the train is actually and or driving is actually faster than a one or two hour flight which is ridiculous it used to be the other way around unless you're in victoria of course anyway oh yes well <laughs> but uh, of course also like it's only a one hour flight from sydney to melbourne but it's an eight to ten hour drive depending on the traffic so uh it's still better to go by plane that way but the only way you can be totally secure is if no one flies ah maybe that's what they're going for but the next level down is where you get to you can have draconian full invasive tests things like that then you come down a bit further to the LL method where they interview you they chat with you one on one they have these discussions it's uh, they've profiled you they've done all sorts of evaluations scans things like that takes a long time to get on an LL flight but you're safe and they've got their guys flying who are armed all this kind of stuff is that what everyone wants the next level down where is a balance between real security and uh, convenience? That's that's the issue. And uh, there's the classic phrase, the classic quote of, um, was it giving up your freedoms to become secure? means you get neither. And that really does seem to be happening. Um, I've, no, I've misquoted that. But it's the concept that uh, people are selling their freedoms, selling uh, their, their rights in the thought that they're going to get security, which they're not. They're not getting more secure because it's a ding-dong battle in the the terrorists when they're out to do something they will find ways and it comes down to better profiling better reviews it seems that a lot of security groups a lot of governments are looking at the problem as a technology problem when really the technology is a tool and you've got to look deeper do do the five whys analysis to find the root cause things like this Um, i'm just not seeing that happening at the moment with security it's uh 
too many people in, in power, too many pe- corporations and governments are using security as an excuse to say, oh, it's like think of the children. Well, it's, it's like think of security, think of the terrorists, let's introduce this. And people are flocking to remove their freedoms. Another argument um, and another way of looking at this too is the, is the notion that, and we've seen this a lot in the, uh, the IT side of things, uh, the notion that uh, privacy is essentially dead. And if you want to operate effectively in the modern world, then perhaps you, uh, whether it's you know right or wrong, you, you sort to have to look at uh, sacrificing a, a little bit of your privacy. For instance, Grant, how many of us use Gmail uh, with Google searching every bit of our emails for uh, to, you know to generate ad revenue? Yep. I know I use it. I know you use it. So and yep. and, and part of the trade-off we've made for the convenience of using this uh, pretty flash email technology is that we've sacrificed a little bit of our privacy to do that. You know, I feel people will become complacent about that over time. People will become used to it and won't even think of it after a while. I, I wouldn't apply that argument to the full body scanning. I think that's that's just unnecessary and over the top. But, yep. Uh, yep. you know, things like perhaps having other, you know, an, an increase in the the, uh, the type of uh, biometric markers that are included on the, you know, the RFID chip in your passport. People, ah, but they've, most, see, they've most, already most, shown... Most people are not even going to think of that over time. Well, this is the thing. These RFID passports, you really want to carry them inside a metal container. I know it sounds like, ooh, tinfoil hat brigade, but you can scan and read an RFID passport from a distance. They've been shown to do that. Tests have been done in Europe and the US and they've shown that you can scan them all from a distance. Uh, you, you don't have to even get too close to the people and you can spot the RFID chip passports and read their information out of them. It's not as secure as they tell you it is. And this is the thing, we're, we're, we're driving headlong into more biometrics storage but if you get that information out of somebody's passport, you've just set them up for identity theft, which is the latest growing crime in the thousands, is identity theft, taking over someone's ID to get credit to buy stuff that, illegally that you never pay back. And these are the things that are concerning me about what's going on here. And um, it's interesting that you mentioned privacy being dead. I still use, I, I have encryption on some of my emails for some of my business and various activities I'm involved in. I encrypt my emails. The, I use encryption for some of the uh, chat sessions that I have with people if they they have it on their end as well. Some friends of mine are reasonably into the concept of surfing the net privately and it isn't too hard to do. Uh, there's some redirectors, there's uh, tools like Tor, things like that that allow you to surf anonymously and if you're willing to give up the um, cookies knowing you and automatically logging you in and automatically bringing up what you want on the screen um, and manually logging yourself in, then yeah, a lot of the tracking that goes on disappears. So there are people out there who who want to protect their privacy and are working to protect it. But yes, as I think it was Ellison said, the majority of people would sell their privacy for a $2 Coke. Yeah, well, I reckon he's dead right. Anyway, mate, probably is a, a, an interesting couple of points here to finish up with on this subject. Uh, it's saying here that the bulk of the 1 million people that uh, have so far used the SmartGate system that we're talking about here, uh, most of them have been air crew. So, you know, those people, obviously, you know, you, you can see the advantage for them, you know, the, the, the time savings uh, that they do oh, yeah. there. So, and they'd be, you know, using it much more than just about all of us. So uh, that's really interesting. That system's been around since 2005. And yep. um, some of the articles that we're looking at here, Grant, say that the smart gate idea, uh, the days of that might be numbered. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that. They're, they're having to coerce people to use the smart gate lane. Apparently there's been big queues to go through the normal customs immigration and there's no one in the smart gate queue. No, you know so, what it is, Grant. Maybe everybody wants to get their face on the um, the border security program on the on the TV. That's what it is, <laughs> and they won't get that if they go through the smart gate. Oh, no. <laughs> the reality TV at Customs and Immigration. That's yeah, scary. there you go. 
Okay, mate. Uh, now let's uh, move across the uh, the Tasman and have a bit of a look at some New Zealand issues. Uh, Grant Air New Zealand have uh, shown off some new seats that will allow some economy class passengers to lie down on long haul flights. I wonder if that means they won't have to look so much at those appalling new uniforms they're bringing in. Oh wow! Wow! Hey, come on. We agreed we weren't. We were going to hold off a little until we had seen the whole range. We've only seen one piece that could be the most extreme. But yeah, it is pretty bad. We held off. Uh, three <laughs> weeks. I mean, in my defence, we held off three weeks. Yeah. True. 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 We've bitten our tongues heaps, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Bite our teeth. It, I, this is this is along that line of what Air New Zealand are doing to uh, sell people. You, you've got a flight that's not full. Well, hey, do you want to buy an extra seat? Well, now they've also put in some seats that can convert down into a uh, two-seat or possibly three-seat lie-flat bed. So it, although it's not quite like a six-and-a-half-foot-long lie-flat bed, it's a lot better than being squeezed into an economy seat for a very long haul across the Pacific. Yeah, they're calling it the Sky Couch here, and they're saying it offers you a much better opportunity to have a genuine sleep than it does currently sitting upright in an economy seat. Uh, well, I know, I know traveling, I've traveled long haul across the Pacific a number of times, and there's been those heavenly flights where you can get three or four seats to yourself. You put the armrests up, you uh, get yourself down and put put the blanket on and the um, the seatbelt over the outside of the blanket, and you generally wake up about half an hour out of Sydney after leaving uh, San Francisco or LA. It's, it's heaven. This kind of thing will make that a lot more comfortable. Interesting to note in this article, mate, is that uh, Brett Schneider of Cranky Flyer gets uh, right up. Yeah. He's mentioned as saying uh, the seat takes up the same amount of space, enhances the experience for people, and sounds great to him. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, New Zealand suffers the same tyranny of distance issues yes. that we suffer here in Australia. It's a slightly sh- shorter flight from the US to New Zealand than it is to come over here, but it's still a heck of a long way. So, uh, you know, I'd be pretty interested in trying out some of those seats. Yeah, no, they're, they're doing a lot of uh, innovations on their aircraft. Uh, these are on the 777 200s, and uh, probably also, I guess, they'll do it on the 777 300s when they come in. But the other features include new oven technology to cook food from scratch rather than just reheating, uh, an extensive new in-flight entertainment system using touchscreens, wine tasting and destination seminars, ooh la la, uh, slip-on pillows for headrests, thus removing the uh, need for neck cushions in economy, uh, flight planner to know when meals, drinks and so on will be served and when lights will be dimmed, so that can come up on the IFE I would imagine, uh, shared meal experiences such as pizza for two in the premier economy cabin, and on-demand food and beverage service and business class. So these are all pretty innovative things things to get people happy on board the aircraft and you got to hand it to Air New Zealand we've been following them for a while we're, we're seeing good things coming out of them they've had a you know they've had their slip-ups they've had their problems and I'm not just talking about the uh, uniforms here but on the whole I'd say they're hitting more wins than losses definitely yeah, Grant, it says here the first routes on offer to travellers will be on the long-haul travel services on selected New Zealand 5 and New Zealand 6 services between Auckland and Los Angeles from December now we're assuming that that was the coming December. Uh, we're still in January here. but I don't know, because then they talk about uh, from April 2011 for um, the other flights between Auckland and LA and through to London. I, I, I don't know. Are we going to have to wait a whole year to get these seats? That seems pretty silly. But the, this, the seats are being uh, designed in New Zealand. So this is the great thing is that this is a Kiwi invention. And if they take off, they're sure to be able to uh, license this to other airlines. So it's great to see they're building this. They've got a Kiwi industrial designers, the industrial design company Ideo, and some of the top Kiwi boat builders. And if anyone out there knows about Kiwi yachtsmen, uh, they're great boat builders. The Kiwis, they, they, they built some amazing yachts. So, uh, yeah, this is great. I'm very happy to see it. And while we're still reporting on uh, New Zealand news, we want to report here on the rather sad death of a Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot, uh, a member of their uh, display team, the Red Checkers. That's correct. Squadron leader Nick Cree died just after 8am on the 14th of January. 
following a crash while conducting a solo maneuver as part of a red checkers air display practice. This is pretty sad for the Kiwis. They've they've lost a few of their um, aerobatics people. They they used to do an amazing show with their uh, Kiwi Skyhawks where they would do a, f- a four aircraft formation barrel roll and I believe oh, it was definitely the barrel roll. I'm not sure if there's any other maneuvers. But the uh, number four slot aircraft would be plugged into the probe and drogue of the uh, number one aircraft doing a buddy refuel. Mm, so that actually be connected. Place. It was brilliant. Yeah. So they lost a few of their guys over time. Um, a couple of them went in at Nowra, um, hot dogging around the hills here in Australia when they were providing uh, fleet training services to the uh, Australian Navy. And to, to lose someone here with the, uh, this is a real shame, with the red checkers, these guys fly the uh, CT4E air trainer, which is a uh, piston engine low wing aircraft with a bubble canopy and side-by-side seating. It's part of the uh, training training fleet. It's a very modern version of the CT4, um, a derivative of the Air Tourer, uh, the Victor Air Tourer. I've actually been flying in a few of those uh, in my time here in Australia. A lot of fun aircraft to fly. These are a very upgraded version and um, being used as a primary trainer for Kiwi Air Force pilots. Uh, they have a few of them that fly a pretty good formation show and unfortunately, yeah, this guy died uh, during an accident while uh, training. Now, this crash happened near the Air Force Base at Ohakia. Ohaki is just outside Palmerston North in the Manawatu district. Um, it was the uh, no, Palmerston North was the city that I spent my last five years in New Zealand at, and uh, Ohaki is the Air Force Base where they used to have the, uh, the Skyhawks. And um, yeah, they were they were doing some training in the over the fields in the area. Now, just reading here in a statement uh, provided by the Chief of the Air Force, and this is on the Royal New Zealand Air Force website. And uh, this statement here is by uh, Air Vice Marshal uh, Graham Linnett. And uh, as I said, he's the chief of the Royal New Zealand Air Force. He says here that uh, Squadron Leader Cree had an excellent flying record. He joined in uh, 1996 and flew on deployment with the Royal New Zealand Air Force in the Solomon Islands and in East Timor. Uh, He's also served on exchange with the Singaporean Air Force. Uh, He commanded one of their detachments of helicopters in East Timor, and he was a Category A flying instructor at their Central Flying School and, uh, as of course, uh, a member of the Red Checkers display team. He goes on to say here that Squadron Leader Cree loved flying and obviously our thoughts with his wife and son and other members of his family who now face the loss of a loved one. So, uh, yeah, Grant, our thoughts go out to the family of uh, Squadron Leader Nick Cree. Uh, to become an Air Force pilot in any capacity uh, is a, a huge achievement in itself, uh, but to become such a, a highly regarded pilot in that uh, rather small group of, uh, of airmen around the world uh, is, is something outstanding in itself and it's, it's really a tragedy to uh, lose an airman of this caliber indeed okay mate sticking with defense and uh, heading back here to australia and uh, a scathing report has been released on the uh, jsf the f-35 program uh, now australia has recently committed to an initial purchase of uh, 14 of these aircraft uh, they'll be coming on stream sometime after 2016 uh, grant i think probably around 2018 there have been a lot of concerns about the uh, viability of this aircraft and whether or not it's really appropriate to be operating at all in australia uh, yeah. here's an article here in australian aviation magazine which uh, seems to confirm just that thought. Yeah, that's right, mate. The um, the troubled uh, F-35 JSF program has received yet another scathing report, this time from the Pentagon's Director of the Operational Test and Evaluation Group. The, uh, the report's raising a lot of concerns, including the fact that they're using some uh, very immature modelling and simulation that's being performed by uncredited, uh, unaccredited labs and uh, that they're behind on their testing and that testing is indicating some problems like clutch heating problems, uh, 
for the uh, Stovall versions uh, came out of the hover pit testing. Uh, they're coming up with problems about weight, uh, safety issues because they de- deleted some check valves and engine bay fire extinguishers to save weight. So that means it's a bit more dangerous. It may not be as resilient to uh, to damage when it's in the in the field and uh ben sandlin's over at the plane talking blog on crikey.com.au has um he's presented uh, some notes that were sent to him by uh, dr carlo Kopp, a defense analyst at air power australia and the air power australia group are, are kind of negative on the jsf they're not very impressed with it they're saying that it's uh stealth capabilities are being uh eaten away already by latest developments in by the Russians and in fact a uh, article by Ben today highlights the uh, the first launch and uh, flight of the Russian T50 aircraft which carries the new radars that can see apparently see right through the JSF stealth capabilities so a lot of things are changing out there and a lot of concern that the JSF is just not going to be up to scratch and not able to survive uh, or do what everyone's saying it will. Uh, it's behind on its testing. It's discovering problems, all sorts of issues like this. However, uh, of course, you also get the, the side comments that the uh, DOT&E's report was being done based on earlier information and doesn't include some of the latest test results and uh, progress. So, yeah, people are trying to balance out against this latest report, saying it doesn't show the reality of the current. It's based on the past. And the things we have to to really consider here too, I think, Grant, in this country, is that a lot of our neighbours around Southeast Asia, uh, they tend to favour Russian equipment, most notably of which would be Indonesian. Now, if their Air Force are uh, re-equipping themselves with with, um, aircraft such as the T-50, which uh, we can see some uh, pictures of here on uh, the plane talking website that's a pretty awesome looking aircraft you know if, if those aircraft have the capability to defeat whatever uh, stealth technology might be on the uh, the f-35 that's going to be a real problem for us now my question here is how much of this is rhetoric and how much of this is known as fact well look a lot of a lot of what's being reported in the dote report is fact however what's as I said, what they're trying to say is that it's fact from the past, but a lot of this doesn't change. They're using immature models for simulation, and, and we've found out how effective some of the models can be for simulation with the 787, haven't we? They, well, they found structural testing found problems that were not encountered in the simulations. So, well, not that we were told. So it's starting to look like where the, the F-35 could very well be an aircraft that fails to live up to its uh, expectations. It's running late. It's encountering problems. It's overweight, underprotected. <sighs> yeah, we're, we're a bit worried here. Yeah, and it sounds like we've got uh, right to be. I guess in the short term, Grant, with the, uh, the the upcoming arrival this year, I think we're taking our first delivery of the FA-18F Super Hornets. Still an awesome aircraft by anybody's assessment. So I guess in the oh. short term, you know, we're still pretty well protected. But looking looking long term, and it's looking like at least now 2018 before these uh, F-35s come on stream, um, if they've got that much time to look at it, that still gives them a hell of a lead time to perhaps uh, make a reassessment if they need to. Yeah, well, Australia's only stepped in for 14 aircraft, so we're keeping our options open. But if you follow the guys at Air Power Australia, they don't think the 18 Super Hornet is that good. They uh, they say it's old tech, it's um, clutched together, it's uh, impressive to look at, but it's it's not that survivable in a modern war. So the, the big thing that we've got 
going in our favor is that, yes, Indonesia and uh, a number of the Asian air countries are outfitting with Russian airline aircraft, sorry, are outfitting with Russian combat aircraft, but they don't always have the money to uh, maintain them to correct standards. They don't have the money to put out a uh, full force. And for a number of them, their training may not necessarily be up to scratch to get the best out of those aircraft. When you're talking about uh, organisations like Air Power Australia and people like Dr. Carlo Kopp, what other alternatives do we have? Now, the, um, the, uh, the F-22, the Raptor, well, that's out of the question. The United States doesn't sell them to anybody else. Ah, but Japan's asking for them. But are they getting them? That's what their Congress is currently going on about because, hey, if they do a slightly not as high-tech or not as not as super stealthy version of the F-22, maybe they can get some more money in that they really need. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, uh, and as I understand it, the United States is actually scaling back or finishing up production of those aircraft. So if, if those are the ones that we need, if, they, if that is really the aircraft we should have, then maybe our, you know, our, our government, and let's face it, they, they're always trumpeting here what a close relationship they've got with the United States. Maybe that's what they should be looking at. I mean, we're major allies of the United States. It's not in their interest either for us to have inferior aircraft in the event that they'd have to come over here and help us out in, in, the, in the case of some local conflict here. Um, it's only going to put more strain on their fleets if um, they're having to use their superior aircraft to look after our inferior aircraft. Anyway, it's interesting times that we live in here, Grant, and let's hope we never find ourselves in a situation where we need to rely on these aircraft ever being used in anger. But, you know, you've got to be prepared for any eventuality. And, uh, you know, if, if we, we, of course, we do need the United States here to help us out uh, in any major conflict. And, of course, we, we'd certainly hope that uh, our friends across there in the UK would do the same. But it takes a lot of time to get uh, aircraft prepositioned into this part of the world. Like I said before, we're a hell of a long way from anywhere else. So, you know, let's hope they sort these problems with the F-35 out. The only uh, thing I'd say in closing here, Grant, is that it seems to be that the major problems they're having with the um, F-35 are concerning variants that we're not getting here. The F-35C, which is the carrier variant, and the Stovall one, which I believe is being developed for the uh, United States Marine Corps, if I'm not mistaken. And the British Navy. Uh, and the British Navy. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, no, we're, we're getting the so. conventional, the CTOL. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's hope that uh, that version is not encountering the same sorts of problems. Okay, Grant, just before we throw to the ad break here, um, you heard us mention our favourite aviation magazine, of course, Australian Aviation, and um, my absolute favourite, and you probably find this rather tragic, but my absolute favourite uh, column in Australian Aviation is the <laughs> traffic segment. I love reading about what aircraft are coming and going. Uh, this is the traffic segment by uh, Gordon Reid, and a couple of uh, interesting um, departures and arrivals, Grant, uh, that we found with some of our uh, mainline carrier fleets here in Australia over the last few months. Uh, the first one I wanted to make mention of here is a uh, Qantas uh, A330 uh, Echo Bravo Kilo EBK, other, uh, the aircraft that's known as Savannah Way. It, that's been withdrawn from Qantas service. Uh, that actually happened back on November 10. Uh, it was ferried across to Manila where it was uh, prepared to be re-delivered as a Jetstar aircraft. I find that significant, Grant, given the uh, the recent uh, statements by uh, Qantas management that there'll be no more jet starization of their fleet. Yet here they are taking one of their major uh, aircraft out of uh, mainline service and uh, sticking it in jet star colours. Hmm, interesting. Jet yeah. starization of the aircraft. 
there you go. So um, that's one. <laughs> uh, another significant one here is an aircraft that uh, many Australian Qantas passengers, and uh, Grant and I can count myself as amongst that number, a 767-300 series, a 338ER in fact, OGA, Oscar Golf Alpha, the city of Wyala. Uh, it's been withdrawn from Qantas service. Now, it's actually been in service with Qantas since uh, September 1, 1988. So that Rick. aircraft has been here a very long time. It's uh, been withdrawn from service and has been uh, ferried across to uh, the United States and placed into storage. So, yeah, it's a bit sad. That's an aircraft that... Um, that w- aircraft was used a lot on the Melbourne-Sydney corridor. Uh, you yep. saw that you saw that aircraft all the time at Melbourne Melbourne Airport. So yep. yeah, a bit sad to see that one go. That's when I've flown on it. It's been between uh, Melbourne and Sydney. And the other interesting one here, Grant, uh, talking about the Qantas Group, uh, and we're talking here about Jet Connect, which, as we mentioned, I think last week or the week before, was uh, uh, the Qantas offshoot over there in New Zealand, a seven three seven three seven six. And the more astute amongst you would know that a dash three seven six would have been originally ordered for Australian Airlines, which then became Qantas uh, ZK Julie. Uh, at November Charlie uh, has been withdrawn from service and uh, you might ask well it's only a 737-300 and why is that significant that marks, actually marks the end of an era that's the final 737-300 series aircraft operating uh, in the Qantas group that aircraft actually entered service here in Australia with Australian Airlines. It was originally registered VH Tango Juliet Bravo TJB and named Fortitude. That actually entered service on uh, December 31, 1988. And uh, so, yeah, there you go. That's gone. So no more 300 series operating in Australia or New Zealand, at least not in the Qantas group colours. There you go. There's a few freighters, I believe, uh, a few being converted to freighter. Yeah, I guess on Australian Air Express they'd be, yeah. Yep. Okay, and uh, yeah, just quickly, Grant, just uh, having a look over here at the uh, Virgin group and a bit of a fleet update for them also in the traffic column here by Gordon Reid not so much that it's significant of the aircraft type that's coming but I just love the way they name their aircraft so uh, <laughs> yeah they're great okay this is uh, sort of talking since uh, arrivals in into the country since uh, mid-November they've taken delivery of an E-190 another e-jet to the fleet and they've named uh, this one's uh, Zulu Papar Oscar ZPO they've named this one Porsche Macquarie uh, play on Port Macquarie there you go uh, 737 uh, 800 series that's come onto the fleet, uh, Victor Uniform Tango. They've called this one Yabba Dabba Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Victor Uniform Romeo, another 738. Uh, they've called that one Star City. That's not so humorous. Yeah, but the no, next that's, one, that's, that's named after the um, the casino in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, hey, I wonder if it's got slot machines on there. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give them ideas, Grant. Crikey, it already cost enough. Uh, it's a sister ship, another 738 here, uh, Victor Uniform Sierra, a VUS. Is, they've called this one Chitty Chitty Broom Broom. Uh, and play on the on the town of Broome and the a very popular tourist mecca in the uh, northwest part of Australia. And I'm sorry, of all those, I love Yabba Dabba Blue. That's hilarious. But Chitty Chitty Broom Broom, oh my God, guys, <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> And speaking of the OMG factor, Grant, uh, we did report a few episodes back about the uh, the mile high karaoke version of the uh, seven three seven that uh, the special one that uh, Virgin Blue was operating. That's actually been uh, taken back into a normal configuration. That's Victor Uniform Alpha, another seven three eight. So uh, yeah, that's the one that the Black Eyed Peas toured around Australia. I believe they did the coast to coast trip on that one, and uh, that was one where people were you were lucky enough you could get get yourself onto that flight through a lucky draw or things like that and uh, do karaoke with the uh, Black Eyed Peas. And, uh, yeah, like I said then, oh, save me now. Yep, so there you go. Uh, Those and many more traffic uh, movements could be found. I could report on this for hours, but, uh, you know, we don't want to make this a five-hour podcast. 
experience, 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight Experience, the ultimate flying experience. Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audio Visual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audio Visual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407091524. Well, heck, we've been asked to say something good about the podcast down under. Does anybody have anything? No, let's talk about our own podcast instead. You mean the Airplane Geeks? The Airplane Geeks podcast. You mean the, us? The people that taught the people down under how to do it. You mean the people who speak normally? That's right. And where can people find the Airplane Geeks podcast? Airplane that would be www.airplanegeeks.com. Dot com. And we know how to take care of our friends. We don't let people train us and then just kind of try to one-up them with a better podcast. We don't That's do right. that. No. We're staying at our mediocre level That's where right. we belong. We know our place in the world. <laughs> Long live mediocrity. That's right. And hopefully keeping warm and joining us on the line from London, England, it's Sarge Ahmed. G'day, Sarge. Good afternoon, or sorry, good evening, guys. I keep getting it wrong. Well, it's got to be afternoon or morning somewhere on the planet. Well, it's, it's almost afternoon here. That's probably why I said afternoon first. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's afternoon there. It's evening here. And who knows what time it is by the time people download this and listen to it. Yeah. Absolutely. So we should start, Sarge, by asking you the obvious question. How's the weather in, in London? Very bloody cold. That's about <laughs> the easiest way to sum it up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I won't tell you about the fan I've got going or the fact that we had the air conditioning earlier then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The damage is not done. Oh, sorry. Was that me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I, I've, I feel for you, mate. I feel for you. Hopefully, there's a trip to uh, Dubai coming up soon for you, yeah? Well, a- anywhere that uh, gives us a bit of sunshine. I'm, I'm beginning, beginning to wonder what the sun actually looks like now. Ah, yes, that big yellow sphere in the sky that you yeah, just don't big, see. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the impact been on the local uh, on the local um, airline business over there with all this inclement weather? I mean, we're seeing some uh, some pretty dire reports over here on the news. Well, it it, it depends where, where you're getting your uh, your information from. I mean, so some people are using this as an opportunity to uh, take one of those post Christmas low fare trips abroad and get some sunshine before they have to get back into the swing of things of work. Whereas other people are just uh, you know, uh, sticking with their daily grind and not bothering going out and keeping what little money they have after the so-called Christmas expense and credit crunch, you know, to pay off uh, the debts that they've accumulated over the last six to eight weeks. So it really does depend on uh, where you're getting the information from. It's probably true for both uh, parts, to be fair. So, but, Sarge, uh, what, what's, uh, what big news? Uh, we've, uh, we believe you've had some figures on um, aircraft sales and uh, orders towards the end of last year. A uh, bit of a summary of that, maybe? Yeah, I mean, we can we can look at uh, the the orders last year of, uh, for both uh, OEMs, 
primarily Epis and Boeing. And, you know, again, the 737 and A320 have come out uh, as big uh, earners for, for both companies. You know, the, the fact that both of them got uh, record deliveries still shows that there is big demand for these airplanes out there and that the capacity system is taking out a lot of these older aircraft, older 737s, MD-80s, DC-9s. They're all coming out of the system very, very quickly and equally as quickly uh, and bizarrely, capacity seems to be being added by way of these new A320s and 737s. So, uh, you know, th there's going to be an interesting few years to come when we look at residual values of some of these low-cost operators will be getting rid of their fairly new-build A320s and 737s and replacing them with new jets. So pricing-wise, it's going to be really interesting to see where orders come from this year, considering that, uh, you know, nearly 70 to 80% of orders for both Airbus and Boeing last year comprised of the 737 and A320. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see whether many operators now go for older you know, 737 800s or 820s uh, or whether they go to the OEMs and look for uh, you know better discount pricing on new airframes. At the end of the day, there is a lot of pressure on both companies to maintain their delivery and production rates. And so far, they've been reluctant to cut. And uh, to, to be fair, it's poised on a knife edge. And uh, it really just depends on which way operators and Airbus Boeing want to go in terms of their, their production rates. So nobody really knows with any clarity whether they will cut or even even if they look to actually increase output. So this year will probably be one of uh, a transitional phase. The A380, of course, is uh, the big news, the big headline maker, of course. How is the uh, delivery of the A380 going and orders? Well, orders, I would say, has been the same as it's been for the last 24 months. Uh, and there have been very few and far between, you know, and uh, I think uh, eight or nine out of the 17 customers have already deferred, you know, double-digit figures of the backlog already. So there isn't really much in the way of great demand to push, or, or sure, I should say, pull demand forward and have deliveries any earlier. Uh, and that, in effect, is controlling the way Airbus is managing their supply base and their uh, production capability. Uh, I know a lot has been made about their uh, customer uh, cabin requests and how it's customized. Uh, personally, I don't buy into that because every airline has customized cabin furnishings anywhere on every airplane. The A380 is no different. The fact of the matter is very many airlines who have actually now purchased this airplane are finding it hard to actually fill and fill it with meaningful numbers. Yields are very low. Uh, Low-cost carriers such as Jetstar are, are taking traffic away from the bottom line at, at Qantas. And then you see uh, companies like uh, Emirates and uh, Singapore who are also struggling to get business and first-class fares onto their airplanes. And the A380 cannot make money on volume alone. The whole premise of the ad airplane is to make money based on high fare yields. And that just isn't happening the way uh, the market is at the moment. And I just figured just a few days ago, uh, certainly emphasize what I'm saying. How, how does Emirates, how, how are they going with their A380? At the moment, they're, they're running uh, purely based on volume. The, the reason yeah. they have to uh, kind of bypass the woes that uh, Qantas and Singapore have is primarily because of these, uh, you know, the uh, de facto subsidies that they have based in Dubai. You know, the, the ruling uh, elite owns Emirates, so they have less exposure to uh, traffic fluctuations. And at the moment, you know, if you're going to transit through the Middle East, there's only one place you're going to transit, and that's Dubai. You wouldn't really want to go anywhere else. And at this moment in time, they've managed to uh, keep volumes up, even though their margins on their profitability are certainly down. And I expect that to be reflected in their earnings when they uh, you know, report in a few months' time. Yeah, because I was hearing from a contact in, um, in Emirates that uh, the A340s that they're flying out from Dubai to Melbourne are packed, absolutely packed, and going across to uh, Auckland, they're full. And uh, the word is that they're going to put the 777 on the Dubai to Melbourne route, but uh, they'd love to put the um, the A380 on there. Apparently, though, that was the scuttlebutt on the inside. Yeah, I think the, 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 the plan within Emirates at the moment, and the part of the reason why they're doing so well down under in your region, 
is purely based on pricing, and that's holding up volume. If you were to dissect the numbers, and uh, while this is proprietary, and obviously I can't share exact details, you'll probably find that there is very little in the way of premium traffic being hauled all the way from Dubai down to your region. Yeah. It, it is all volume-based traffic, and that's the only reason why their, uh, you know, their volume levels have held out so far, and why they are exploring the, uh, you know, the possibility of uh, deploying their maybe their six day three eighty or the seventh one, which is due in a few weeks' time, uh, uh, on routes down to Melbourne and, and Auckland. And if that doesn't happen, you'll probably find that they'll shift two triple sevens down to down to the south. Uh, but again, all of this is based on volume and it has very little to do with, uh, you know, high yield traffic. And, and that's the concerning thing, because ultimately it's all about making money. I would very much stick my neck out on the line and say they're probably making very little, if at all, any money on the on the traffic that they're actually shipping down south at the moment. Yeah, doing the Woolworths principle type of thing where it's, uh, you know, but make it up in volume. Doing uh, to here at Heathrow at the moment, and to a lesser extent, uh, the, the second other hub that they have at Gatwick and even Manchester, uh, the, the numbers are awfully weak, even though the volume volumes are there. So, you know, questions have to be asked as to if they didn't have the uh, de facto governmental support that they have, uh, would we see a possibility that uh, Emirates would sport, you know, a uh, second loss in its uh, history? And the only time they've ever sported a loss was in their first year of separate uh, operations in back in 1985 when they were set up. And every year since then, they've made a profit. But without that, uh, I suspect very much so that they would be in lost position. It's interesting okay. with Emirates. I know, I know uh, a few times when I've looked at um, comparing airfares between uh, Emirates and some of the other carriers that operate from here across to Europe, uh, Emirates always seems to be at the higher end of the price range. But interestingly, I was talking to some friends of mine that uh, are New Zealanders and what quite regularly cross over there, and they swear by Emirates. They say they get the absolute best deal uh, on the uh, flight they do from Melbourne across to um, to Auckland. Is it Auckland they go to, Grant? Yeah, yeah Auckland, yeah. I suppose it depends on how you actually do your booking with Emirates because there are there are various uh, you know um, I'm just trying to think of the right word there are various avenues if you know how to play the Emirates website properly that you can get a very good deal even though they may on first glance have a higher sticker price compared to you know New Zealand for example but uh, there, there are offers out there and I think that's one of the ways that Emirates uh, relies on so much of its customer base coming back uh, because a lot of them will probably not use the website to book directly they will go through uh, you know advertising campaigns that Emirates run or if they're on an email subscription list which a lot of customers do uh, and that's the way a lot, a lot of uh, traffic keeps coming back to Emirates and, uh, and Etihad to, to a lesser extent has started to do exactly the same thing. So uh, you know, it, it's a it's a classic strategy that's working, and uh, yeah. you know, hats off for making it work, especially during this kind of downturn. But uh, it, it just really depends on uh, whether you know uh, Qantas can make uh, some competitive moves of its own to combat this. You know, at the end of the day, they have a 380 at their disposal, and uh, as I opined in a in a recent article I published, there seems to be very little uh, straight Australasian presence within the Middle East region, and it's uh, it's very it's very shocking that uh, that that is the case especially when you have at least three Middle East carriers making a play in the Australasia region. Yeah, the, the Aussies seem to be focusing more on the rest of Asia, not so much the Middle East. But uh, look, I, what you're saying about people going on through emails and things is right. I mean, my intense scientific study, I, I asked me mum, uh, she just flies Emirates. She, she says she just books with Emirates and it's only if uh, Emirates don't go where she wants to go that she starts checking other airlines. She just doesn't even bother checking the price on others. And, and this, is, this is part of brand loyalty and, and this is why, uh, you know, carriers like Southwest Airlines and Ryanair do so well. You know, people can slate them for, you know, their, their ad hoc charges, the fact that this is propped up by a government or whatever, but they've made, you know, these, these airlines have made a success story on 
brand loyalty. And that's something that's very hard to separate from a customer to a brand that they're attached to. Well, once you have that bond there, it is very difficult to break. Uh, you, you mentioned brand loyalty with Ryanair. I thought it was um, A, masochism, or B, uh, the fact that no one else flew where they fly. Well, the, to a certain extent, that's true, that they fly to places where nobody else flies. But then again, that is what also brings up brand loyalty, because if there's nobody else who can fly to, you know, out to Mongolia or something uh, <laughs> from Luton, you know, then how, how else are you going to get there? And you only want to yeah. pay 50 pounds for it, you know. So, yeah. And this is where uh, Ryanair makes a play in the media. And as much as people dislike uh, Michael O'Leary, personally, I think he, he's a great individual and he plays the media well. And a lot of people think Richard Branson does it well, but he, he is not a patch on Michael O'Leary. And he makes, uh, you know, customers aware of what his airline can do. That's where he, he has a success story. Yeah. Uh, Interesting enough, their, uh, their earnings are out tomorrow, uh, Monday. Uh, for, for listeners' benefit, we're recording at the last day of January. So uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see you know, uh, what their passenger volume is going to be like tomorrow when they report their earnings. <laughs> yeah, and everyone goes, hang on, you got how much off me? <laughs> Well, let's not forget when they reported their earnings back in November, uh, passenger revenue was down 15%, even though you know their uh, passenger traffic was up by the same amount. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see just how much uh, Ryanair can take a hit on passenger revenue uh, until they have to start looking at other ways of uh, increasing their ticket prices. What about, uh, I think the last time we spoke to you, Sarge, uh, it was basically the first week or so that uh, Qatar Airways had started operating over here. Has there been any uh, figures on how they're going with their uh, foray into the Australian market? Not, not at the moment, but uh, in, in terms, again, of, of volume-based traffic, they seem to be doing very well. You know, the, the 777 LRs that they have out there are just too class. Uh, obviously, if they do grow uh, volumes within the next few weeks, at the towards the tail end of the summer end period uh, for for the South uh, Australasia region, then you may see you know a uh, decision come next summer period that they may even deploy the 300ER or uh, just purely to uh, grasp more traffic. Now, obviously, they've got a few years to wait before they get their A380s, and uh, they're still taking triple seven 300ER deliveries. So they may actually upgauge in the next few months. But uh, at, at the moment, yeah, I don't really have any meaningful numbers, but I know that uh, the passenger loads are doing pretty well. It's definitely an interesting part of the world just to compare. You know, the the whole aspect of uh, Emirates slashing and doing the volume and, and uh, Qatar trying to break in and the Aussies not there at all. It, it does does paint a very interesting picture of what's going on there. I am wondering why why uh, Qantas, Jetstar or anyone like that's not in there yet. And, and this is one of the funny things. I was reading one of the uh, Australian press reports earlier this week that uh, Jetstar is looking to uh, put Singapore as its hub and use that to go through to Europe. Now, that, that's going to be pretty difficult primarily because you already have Singapore Airlines playing their trade on that route, yep. and you also have uh, British Airways there, and both of those carriers are suffering you know, really bad yield erosion with their first premium class traffic on, on uh, that sector. Uh, it'll be very hard for Jetstar just to use price alone uh, to kind of snare traffic, primarily when uh, British Airways in Singapore have been advertising for months on, on, on much bigger airplanes, you know, 747 and A380 and even the 777-300ER. I'm, I'm just not convinced that Jetstar is going to make any meaningful uh, impact uh, straight away. It, it will take a lot of time. And well, the funny thing is, you know, I go back to the point that there's a lot of Middle East presence in, Austra in Australia, but yet very little Australian presence in the Middle East. And it would have been nice to have actually seen Jetstar pick up a, a, a secondary city in the Middle East, such as Muscat in Oman, for example, and use that just outside of Dubai and Abu Dhabi and, and Doha, or even Bahrain to a certain extent, and fly that way. Not only would they cut out a few hours flying time, uh, you know, it would certainly put the pressure on uh, the home domestic incumbent carriers in the Middle East to know that there's, uh, you know, a low-cost carrier within their midst. Uh, the reports are indicating that Jetstar is planning to add a significant number of 
seats domestically and return flights. So maybe uh, this is going to free up uh, some of their their attention to get into Asia. But I, I yeah, I've not seen anything that's indicating they're even considering Middle East. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, only, only today uh, I got an email from a colleague based in Abu Dhabi who tells me that Air Asia X has suspended Abu Dhabi, and, and I predicted this a few months ago. Uh, so it's, it's kind of uh, wow. uh, an interesting time in, in the Middle East that the Middle Eastern carriers seem to be uh, creating a fortress for themselves, and yet nobody seems to want to be taking them on in their backyard. So it's very interesting that they have this uh, keep them out and block them out mentality, and yet they're wanting to break down the barriers of everybody else that they're competing with. Uh, is this... Is Possibly related to what you're talking about about the virtual subsidies and so on. The the they're not really. But I think it's more to do with the fact that uh, they have the uh, not necessarily uh, resource backing to do it. It's the fact that they know that they control so much O and D traffic in the region purely based on volume and the amount of airplanes that they have at their disposal in that region. It would be very difficult for somebody to start up uh, an operation to the Middle East without having significant frequencies behind it. Without that, there's just no way to compete with the likes of Etihad or Emirates mm. and, and even railways. And I think that's probably why uh, Jetstar and the like uh, are keeping well away from that region. Yeah, because they, they just can't support that level of, of investment of, ty- of aircraft frequencies, people. Absolutely. And, and, and going back to the other point that you make about uh, you know de facto subsidies, if it is the case that these carriers are uh, having their uh, losses, uh, you know, kind of propped up by the state, uh, can, can a you know private entity like Jetstar or Qantas support the same itself? Uh, no. I, I the answer would be no to that. And, yeah. and I guess that's, that is probably the bigger driver behind the decision not to be in the Middle East, rather than you know the the, the lack of frequency-based support that they will need to make an operation work. Yeah, true. Because the uh, like. There are Qantas groups already hemorrhaging on the uh, and with their premier traffic on the Trans Pacific and the uh, the London routes. They're also uh, losing out in terms of just general share because of the uh, the increased competition on the Pacific routes. So uh, if they're trying to break into Asia as well, there's the old adage: don't don't fight a war on two fronts. So if they're breaking into Asia, the last thing they can afford to do is is not focus and 100% on building that market and try and split their attentions across two by going into the Middle East as well. Absolutely. And I think what, you know, what, one of the interesting things is that uh, the uh, reliance that uh, Qantas has had on Jetstar is going to be, you know, their, their undoing at some point because at the end of the day, you know, Qantas has to make a decision as to what it wants to do with Jetstar. Either it supports its business or it's going to steal away traffic. That, that kind of partnership can't go on for very long. And now that Jetstar has got this pact with uh, AirAsia X, pressure is going to be on to somehow stop the bleeding of traffic from one operation to the other. And, uh, my, my gut feel is that you're, you're just going to see more and more Jetstar. Uh, all the indications are there. New routes are all Jetstar. Everything new is Jetstar. And, and Qantas will slowly become more and more Jetstar eyes. Jetstar will probably introduce a slightly better area as they already have, maybe one level above what they have, but they'll introduce that new improved seating and service area they've got across all flights, especially international, the longer ones. And you'll just see Qantas reduced down and down. It's yeah, Qantas had, uh, you know, kind of pioneered Jetstar to kind of uh, supplant, uh, you know, uh, Australian, the the old uh, carrier that they had, mm-hmm. and they seem to have made, you know, a bad move into a worse move. Uh, <laughs> from where I sat, that that's what it certainly looks like. So uh, yet, unless they're thinking about that traffic hemorrhaging, it's only going to get worse for them because yet, you know their reliance on premium fares just isn't going to come back for another few years. So what are they going to do in the interim? They can't afford to keep bleeding money while they're having new airplanes that have to be paid for that are going to be inducted into the fleet. 
Yeah, no, which is interesting because the general press is saying, oh, wow, this is great. Uh, Jetstar is what's keeping Qantas afloat. Uh, Qantas mainline is hemorrhaging all over the place, and it's the, the growth in Jetstar and the, the booming Jetstar that's keeping things going. And so speaking of Jetstar, we see some reports here that they've uh, signed a uh, deal recently to uh, get a huge number of new engines. Yeah, it, it, the deal with uh, International Aero Engines is certainly going to help them uh, you know, extract more fuel efficiency from their fleet. Uh, a lot of talk has been made about uh, re-engineering of the A320 and 737 in the face of competition from the Chinese Comac C919 and uh, to a lesser extent the C-Series. So uh, this move certainly is uh, an incremental step and I suspect that we'll see many other uh, low-cost carriers, in particular AirAsia, is a prime candidate for this as well, uh, to look at engine enhancements to in- uh, increase uh, performance on their fuel burn. Uh, for, for their uh, A320 family and uh, th- this move is one that uh, is going to be endemic for the next three or four years and until Airbus and Boeing decide what they want to do with their engines uh, we'll see incremental deals being made where improvements to the engines are implemented very quickly and uh, you know low-cost operators will get the benefit of lower fuel burn straight away rather than having to wait you know a half decade for a 10 or 15 percent fuel burn improvement on an engine that may not deliver that figure so um, this move has been a long uh, a long while in the planning and it's and it's good to see that uh, Jetstar has made uh, the first definitive move to look to combat fuel prices especially during 2009 when you look at uh, fuel prices were up uh, almost 60% on the back of oil, which had gone up 75% last year. So th- this is just the first of many carriers who will be making this move. Yeah, it's, it's interesting about these new engines, uh, the, the V2500 Select 1, uh, because Jetstar is already using the V2500 on its, uh, it's already installed on about 40 aircraft operated by the carrier. So it's, it's interesting to see that this uh, Select 1 version of the aircraft, uh, they're going to apparently put it on another 50 aircraft, and it uh, gives a whole 1% improvement on f- fuel burn and operates for 20% longer before it has to be removed from the wing for overhaul. So it's definitely an incremental increase. It's a bit of a no-brainer because it's, uh, I'd imagine it's all the same plumbing and everything. But uh, just interesting that, yeah, a 1% fuel burn save is, is such a wonderful thing. I think anything that delivers any kind of fuel burn saving in this current economic climate is going to be something that airlines are going to want to grasp with both hands. Uh, when you look at low-cost carriers, the amount of fleets that they operate, uh, the, the sheer volumes of, of airplanes in the sky at any one time is going to be enough to want to make this kind of investment. Now, if you uh, look at uh, potential further fuel burn savings, not just from uh, the V2500 engine, but even the CFM range for both the A320 and 737, you know, there there are absolutely hundreds of customers out there with these airplanes out there uh, who can benefit from, uh, you know, enhanced fuel burn. So the, the, the market for this incremental improvement is far bigger than many imagine. And this, uh, this echo and chorus for, for new engines, as, as strong as it may be, uh, is still going to be playing second fiddle to incremental engine improvements. And, and this deal just underscores that. Yeah. And uh, when we look next year at the 2011 service entry of the uh, CFM Evolution engine uh, on the 737, uh, which Continental will be taking their first delivery of, that again, you know, it is delivering a 1% fuel burn saving and another further 1% from aerodynamic enhancements that Boeing is making to the 737. So that's 2% overall. Uh, again, you know, th- this is the direction that customers are going to be going in if they're looking to make uh, the most of having a new fleet uh, and making it as efficient as possible. And again, with the A320 shoplets or winglets coming out soon as well, uh, all, all of these incremental things are going to be something that airlines are going to be looking for in the short to medium term rather than suddenly sitting on the byline waiting for a new engine to be uh, slapped onto the onto the current airframes. Now, now with that uh, CFM evolution, you're talking about the 1% same as a Select 1, but it's, it, that extra 1% from improvements, obviously that 
that's uh, for new aircraft. With those engines, I imagine that you could, uh, if you're already operating the V2500, you could upgrade to the Select 1 next time you swap out an engine. I, I, I believe that wouldn't be too hard a deal. Is that correct? I, I believe that that is correct. And uh, with the CFM Evolution engine, it's a little bit more different because uh, the, the engine is slightly more different compared to the, the run-of-the-mill CFM. Uh, okay. 56 that are actually uh, employed on 737 at the moment, but for the Select One, uh, the, the the engine upgrade is available uh, for existing customers who are operating the V2500 as well. So again, when you look at the uh, installed inst fleet in the world at the moment, there is a massive uh, market out there for uh, you know these engines to be upgraded and improved. And, and as I said before, anything that can enhance fuel burn. Uh, and improve uh, monetary savings for both wear and tear on the end, longer on life uh, wing time. You know, all of these things have a, a knock-on effect for the life cycle cost of, of an airplane, and all of these things will be favorable when it comes to saving money. Yeah, no, definitely. It's how long does a does an engine typically last? Uh, you've got to pull it off and do the re, um, overhauls and things like that. But how long does that engine stay around before it's finally that's it? It's over. It's history. Because uh, I'm just thinking, if if you're getting these, uh, say, the select one on new aircraft, how long would it be before you start replacing the standard 2500 with the select ones on existing aircraft? That kind of thing. I'm not an engineer, so I couldn't tell you the exact <laughs> hour. It really depends on the uh, on the utilization. I mean, yeah. uh, I hate to use this as an example, but it, it it works very well here. If we look at Iran Air, they're running some of the oldest 747-100s and 200s around, and yet serviceable parts that they're using, those engines have still, you know, been performing pretty well for them considering the sanctions that they have in place. Yeah. When you look at two engines that you have on the on the A320 and 737, as long as the, uh, you know, the expected life cycle hours for that engine, if you're, on a, if you're a low cost carrier, you'll accumulate more hours purely based on frequencies. You know, as long as the engine is serviced, there's nothing that will stop you from keeping that run engine running uh, for, for many, many years. But uh, okay. a lot of low cost churn over their fleet after six to eight years, uh, such as Ryanair. So, uh, you know, if, if that's an indicative time frame, uh, less than a decade, then yeah. if you look at service carriers like United or British Airways who are also operating, you know, V2500 um, uh, engines, you know, they, they could be using it for almost double the amount of time. So uh, the, you, you can argue that uh, it all depends on your utilization rates. So uh, there's no yep. real uh, physical time constraint. You can only, like an LCD or plasma TV, you can only watch it for so many thousands of hours. <laughs> it depends on how often you want to be investing in your engines and your airframe uh, to, to drive costs down. Yeah, no, I guess if they're swapping out the aircraft every six to eight years, then that it's no point in uh, re-engining an older airframe if they're going down exactly. that path. Exactly, and I, and I think what you'll find with a lot of low-cost carriers, and I suspect when Ryanair does come back to the table uh, to order 737s, they'll probably go with the Evolution engine as well. No, I'd, I'd say anyone doing a new 737 would be mad if they didn't go with the Evolution. Well, it's, it's the same with the A320 operators. I suspect uh, most, if not all, of the A320 orders that we see this year will have the Sharklet uh, or the Winglet incorporated oh, yeah. into it. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. Well, you, already, the airplane will incur a 200-kilogram uh, penalty uh, from 2012 anyway if you don't have the uh, windows installed. Uh, they're, they're hard building that uh, components into the airframe. So it just doesn't make any sense to have a 200 extra kilos of weight added into your new airplane when you're trying to drive weight out of the, uh, the fuselage <laughs> to cut back <laughs> on your fuel. Yeah, why anyone would have a, a modern aircraft with if they offer those winglets without them? Um, I mean, does anyone get the seven three seven eight hundred these days without the winglets? I'm I'm not sure that uh, 
which operator there is out there who's currently ordered 737 that hasn't ordered winglets with it as part of the deal. Yeah. Every photograph you look at out in that Renton line, every single one of them seems to be equipped with winglets. Yeah, because I mean, immediately right off the bat, like you're saying, if, if if they don't order them, if they stick with the older engines, they don't have the winglets, all that kind of stuff, right away they're a couple of percent behind in terms of cost. And, yeah. and that's suicide these days. And if you're a low-cost carrier, you know, trying to compete with uh, the, the big boys or other bigger low-cost carriers in your region, uh, <laughs> cost is, is biblical. You need to keep that in focus. Yep. Yep, and uh, also you've got the whole. I bring this back to to Australia. You've got the situation with uh, Jetstar and Air Asia and their joint venture. If Air Asia aren't already using the twenty five hundred Select One, they sure as heck will be pretty soon, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, and they're one of the biggest uh, A320 customers outside of Europe, if not the biggest A320 customer overall. So yeah. you know that that again is a huge market for both Airbus and uh, for the engine maker to look at when it comes to uh, you know giving them something to entice them and. Uh, make full burn savings so uh, this is also going to play into virgin blue within the next few months when they decide whether they're going to you know renew their lease deals on their 737s or whether they go uh down the route of making a new order so again this is just uh, a region-centric thing It, it, it applies to every customer in every region yeah no virgin blue have been making indications i've heard the indication so far that uh they are talking of taking advantage of the down market and um actually converting those leases into buying brand new aircraft so you know they, they were over there earlier yeah. or towards the end of last year yeah i suspect when it comes to, to virgin blue they will actually perhaps renew some of the leases on their 737s but overall i, I would be prepared for a for a very sizable 737 order yeah. um, maybe by the end of the year i'm not exactly sure when their uh, target time scale is to get this thing wrapped up but uh, whenever they do get it uh, signed and delivered, it will almost certainly be for new build airplanes. It, it just would be inconceivable yeah. that they want to renew leases on um, you know, older 737s when they know that the pressure on the OEMs to maintain production rates uh, on the 737 and A320 will certainly put them in an advantageous position of being able to bargain uh, very more, you know, you know, yeah. saliently what they need. Well, Boeing's definitely churned through a lot of their backlog on the 737s in terms of keeping themselves alive in the last last year or so. That was They've been able to deliver lots of aircraft and keep themselves financially alive, and that's thanks to the backlog of 737s that hasn't really dried up. Yeah, and I think a lot of it also has to do with the availability of financing as well, and it was interesting listening to mm. uh, Boeing's Chief Financial Officer, James Bell, at the earnings call earlier this week, where he mentioned that financing has already been secured for a lot of their orders through to 2012. So, you know, the argument that uh, financing is still difficult clearly is not uh, representative of what's going on in the narrow body market because of the, the lower sticker volumes for the sticker prices of uh, narrow body jets so obviously uh, residual values aside the access to money is obviously there in the marketplace so again that will be a big driver behind uh, virgin blue decision as to whether they go for new build or you know uh, renew their leases on their existing yeah. airplanes. so they're going to have to make their decision pretty soon because i believe the leases start running out in the next year or two yeah and and, and uh, the the Boeing 737 production line is sold out through to 2012, so yeah. they want to make uh, you know uh, a splash on getting new deliveries. Uh, they, they'll probably be looking to tie up uh, financing within the next six to 12 months, yeah. and possibly within the same time period. 
if not uh, sooner. Well, if, if they're doing a big enough order, I'm pretty sure they can get some slots bought forward for them. Well, well this is the thing. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, customers who have deferred 737s uh, haven't actually brought forward their uh, deferrals, although other customers who are waiting farther down the line, waiting for deliveries, are stepping up and taking those slots. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why uh, Ryanair couldn't tie up its deal with Boeing, because they could just couldn't get the meaningful numbers behind them. So, again, you know, if it's from 2012 onwards, uh, you know, uh, sorry, um, uh, Virgin Blue is going to have to make some moves within the next, uh, you know, year to, yeah. to make uh, sure that its supply of uh, new bill 737, if that's what they go for, it's going to be there for them on tap. There's nothing worse than having the financing in place and then having nothing to spend it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, especially because you're paying some parts of the of the cost of financing even before you get the money out. Absolutely, yeah. and and when you throw into the fact that uh, you've got to be paying for uh, pre-delivery payments, you know, it's pretty much as soon as you've signed on the dotted line for an airplane, uh, the, the last thing you want to do is have cash on the hip and not and not doing anything. Yeah, well, Serge, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the two major airframers, but uh, you know, the the uh, the one that we sort of see jumping up and down in the in the back of the room, they're saying, "Pick me, pick me," is the uh, the C series, of course. Has there been much news over your side of the world of the C series? We don't hear much down here at all. In fact, I don't think anybody down here has ordered them yet. No one's ordered yeah. them, but there was a bit of a bombshell just dropped recently, wasn't there, Serge? Yeah, there, there, there were two orders uh, from uh, for, for the C series. One is an Irish leasing company, and the other is Lufthansa. Uh, there was a conference a few weeks ago. Of in Ireland uh, where uh, Gary Scott, the Bombardier's uh, commercial president, was making a uh, representation to the C-Series uh, as, as, he, as he would do anyway. But the, cr- the critical thing that I, I notice about the C-Series is that uh, there just seems to be very little in the way of active uh, campaigns out there who are actually going to turn their interest into orders. And whether that's as a result of waiting to see what Airbus and Boeing are going to do in returns of uh, re-engineering their airplanes, or the fact that they're not convinced that the C-Series can actually deliver what uh, Bombardier is promising, uh, only underscores the uncertainty around that airplane. And, and I've been very critical of the C-Series because it, it all seems to be a lot of uh, marketing hype with very little uh, substantive evidence to support uh, the economics that it proclaims to bring. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is it has you know less than 60 orders after six years of being on the market, uh, there is only one co- well, one commercial customer, Lufthansa, for it, who have also said that they will refuse outright to take first delivery of the C-Series. Uh, they want somebody else to take it. And what, what does that tell you about their confidence in that airplane if you're not prepared as a launch customer to take first delivery? Now, if, if, if Lufthansa had said the same thing about the 747-8 Intercontinental, uh, you know, everybody would be up in arms. But yes, there yeah. doesn't seem to be much in the way of traction about uh, Lufthansa not wanting to take delivery of the first C-Series. You have to ask yourself, why why that is. I believe because they are not convinced that uh, it is going to produce the savings that they say they are going to bring with the C-Series. The engine technology from the the Pratt & Whitney Pure Power 1000G GTF engine is beyond far from sound. There is very little in the way of airline interest in that engine, particularly because it's several thousand pounds of thrust lower rated than uh, the ones on the A320 and 737. Purely from a performance point of view, if you have an engine that is several thousand pounds lower thrust rated than your existing fleet, is it going to be able to do Transcon in the US? No. Is it going to be able to operate from hot and high airports in you know South America and, and high platforms in China? No. Is it going to be able to operate year-round with full loads? No. Is it going to be able to offer the same comfort at six abroad? rest of the 737 and A320? No. Uh, 
everything that you look at when you throw at the C-Series at the moment is a resounding no. And when you look at the order book for the 737, A320 and C-Series, you know, I, I don't really need to say any more than that. <laughs> uh, it, it, it has been by far an out-and-out market rejection. And without the subsidies that the Canadian government has, uh, has afforded Bombardier, Airbus and Boeing would never have launched a product like this and kept it running for six years without this amount of orders. I, I just can't see how that airplane is going to be sustained. Well, that, that to me is the bombshell that I was mentioning just before is uh, the, the fact that uh, Canada has managed to unite Airbus and Boeing due to the subsidies that they're giving to Bombardier to get the C-Series out. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that they would unite themselves over this, primarily because there are very big A319 operators and 737-700 operators. So all Airbus and Boeing are doing, they're protecting their market interest. It's not so much that they've ceded the market to Bombardier, it's the fact that they've actually let Bombardier come in. Yeah. And the fact that Bombardier has come in and has, and I don't care what anybody says, it has been an absolute abject market failure in the C-series to penetrate the 737 and A320 customer base. Nobody's buying it. Yep. And uh, Airbus and Boeing are only looking to preserve their interest because when the time comes for Airbus and Boeing to either replace the families completely or install new engines on those airplanes, the fact of the matter is they want to protect the customer base that they have. The C-series presents absolutely no economic or commercial reason for somebody to dump the A320 family or the 737 and go with them. It just doesn't work. It's a narrower fuselage. It's only five abreast. It cannot take on the same amount of uh, passenger and full freight load or cargo loads as the A320 and 737. And again, as I've mentioned about the performance parameter, it, it just isn't there. Yeah. And when you look at the fact that uh, the Bombardier C-Series, if they look to grow that airplane without a new wing, it would be performance-wise very much restricted in what it can do in terms of range capability. And you know, when you have low-cost carriers who are operating flights of 45 minutes up to six hours, the C-Series, can it compete at the same kind of platform? I just don't think that it will. It's not looking good airlines, for it. Airlines know this, and that's why they haven't bought this airplane, based on what uh, the marketing gimmicks that uh, Pratt & Whitney and Bombardier are, are, are slapping around everywhere in their presentations. It just yeah. doesn't sit very well. Yeah, and obviously Lufthansa are just wanting somebody else to go and uh, work out the kinks because they know they're going to be there in version one. Absolutely, and you know the the, the materials. It's not even so much about the materials that are being used on the airplane. You know, the, the the fact of the matter is the numbers that are being put in front of everybody that the C series is presenting just doesn't cut the mustard. That that's the only way it can be summed up. Now, when you look at uh, Airbus and the last eighteen months or almost two years, they've had testing on the Pratt and Whitney GTF. Now, if they haven't. Uh, made a move for the GTF on the A320. What, what does that tell you? Mm. It, it certainly cannot be because the A320 is an inefficient airframe. That, <laughs> that nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the, the A320 hasn't racked up five or six thousand orders if it was a, such an inefficient airframe. The engine just doesn't deliver what Pratt and Whitney says it will deliver. Even though they're talking about this geared turbofan, gears actually need more lubrication. The the, the fact that they would need extra weight of that engine as well, delivering several thousand pounds less thrust uh, over its lifetime as well. It certainly doesn't bode well. Uh, it may have more on-time wing, but then you know you've got to wear up the pros and cons of uh, this so-called perceived deliverance of 15 to 20 percent, which has not yet been achieved in any engine test run. And can it deliver that in operation? Personally, I don't think that it will. And I think yeah. this is why Boeing hasn't really entertained uh, you know a, a major a news announcement on 737 engineering, even though they've admitted in their conference call that they're looking to examine that. But examining doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly make a, a decision within the next you know six 
months is to say, yeah, we're going to go with a new engine and go for it. Uh, I suspect like Airbus, they're doing product development studies all the time. And the new two teams that they set up this week for the 777 uh, product de- uh, development and the 737 product development gives you an indication as to, you know, their intentions, what they want to do with those two airframes as well. So the, the, the C-Series for all intents and purposes, uh, until it can get some serious traction, which I don't think that it will. I, I think that they'll be lucky if they get anywhere near 100 orders by the end of the year, if at all. Uh, I think Farmer will be a big uh, test of that because it was at Farmer that they set up the first deal with Lufthansa. And two years on, there's only two customers. Uh, I, I just don't see why Ebbers and Bone are really going to get worried. I think the interesting thing out of the whole of this week, what we really should be focusing on is Boeing's managerial changes that they've made with the 737 and 777 product development team. And I suspect every man and his dog is going to be guessing which which of those two airplanes is going to get modernized first. I couldn't tell you which one it would be, but I think uh, the fact that they've brought in uh, Lars Anderson, who was the uh, 777 engineer for the Dash 200LR and 300LR it is certainly a statement of intent. And if I was a betting man, <laughs> I would be betting that they are not going to update the 777. I, I would be betting that they're going to go out all guns blazing and replace the 777. As to when that happens, I couldn't tell you. Uh, whether that happens before a 737 update, I couldn't tell you. But what I can tell you is that I suspect that Boeing is going to make big moves to replace the 777 family altogether. That is pretty big because, uh, yeah, there are there are people making comments that uh, you know, the, the, A3, the A350 will uh, impinge when it's out on the triple sevens market because it's uh, the same kind of size and, and duration distance you know the range thanks to its uh, new technologies it'll be cheaper over the same same people yeah uh, the the the, uh, the market is still out on the a350 1000 which is the, uh, the biggest stretch of the a350 considering that you know um, even Emirates has said that it will not be able to carry you know the same amount of meaningful freight and passengers as its current triple seven three hundred er so perhaps that model is a stretch too far okay uh, which I think which I certainly think it is anyway. Uh, there's only 75 orders for it against nearly 400 uh, for the for the 777 300ER on its own. Okay, because I, I thought the uh, I thought the three one of the 350 models was going to be able to compete the, the, pretty well. The 350 model that that'll be competing with the 777 is the uh, the Dash 900, which will be competing against the 777 200ER family. Okay, and and, the, and there's no doubt that that airplane will be a formidable successor. You know, it's going to deliver up to 25% better fuel savings. Cost and maintenance will be an awful lot better due to the materials advancement. But then again, when you look at the installed fleet of the 777-200ER, you know, there's uh, uh, five or 600 of those airplanes out there. So this is a big market and uh, and it's evolutionary. Just as the 767 took away market share from the A300 and A310, the A350-900 will do exactly the same to the 777-200ER. But at the same time, the 777-300ER is certainly not threatened by the A350-1000. If you look at the 777-300ER customer base, you know, only two of the, uh, sorry, only three of the customers have uh, gone for the A350-1000 and they're the Arab carriers in Emirates, Qatar and uh, Etihad. Nobody else has even entertained any RFP for the A350-1000 in any wide-body campaign in the last two years. So the, the market is still out on the A350-1000 and I think that even when that airplane does make it into service in 2017 or whenever it makes it out there, Boeing will certainly have something on the table that will uh, carry that. So, um, I do not suspect that they're going to let the, the, the Dash 300ER die a quiet death uh, in any strength, in any length of the word. You know, it's only been in service six years this April with airframes, so it, it, the airframe itself is still relatively new. When we look at airframe life cycles for up to 20 to 25 years, you know, these the, the decisions are not something that Boeing is going to take lightly. Uh, lightly. So uh, again, I go back to my point that this product development team that they've set up, uh, from where I'm sat now, if I was the betting man, I suspect that Boeing is going to be going out all guns a blazing uh, with uh, uh, a new replacement altogether. They may still enhance 
performance increments onto this 777-300ER as they've done with uh, you know the uh, performance improvement packages that they've done since the airplane entered service in 2004 with the uh, you know the wing improvements with the uh, wing deflectors and, and and other kind of aerodynamic enhancements. These things will carry on happening, and, and I suspect GE will increment implement uh, you know fuel burn uh, savings through the GE NX program back onto the GE 90. Um, so th- there's a, a lot to to go forward in the next few years, but uh, I think the interesting thing is going to happen is after the A350 enters service and what Boeing does in terms of its product development strategy. Uh, again, you know whether they uh, replace or update the 737 is still anyone's guess, yeah. but uh, the likelihood of uh, a warmed over 777 seems to me now to be very less likely now that they've called back in one of the best engineers on the 777. Okay, yeah, someone who can really, really work the, the designs and, and get something light years ahead coming out. Absolutely, and, and and this is all down to uh, you know technological advancement, and I suspect the learning process that Boeing has had with the seven eight seven, the acquisition of the Vought facility, the the Vought mm-hmm. stake, so the global aeronautica stake. In one fell swoop, Boeing has now got you know the biggest autoclaves in the world at its disposal. Yeah. So who's to say that they won't ship out work from Everett? for a new 777 replacement down in uh, South Carolina. And, you know, this, this is perhaps part of their strategy to move away from the threatening unions in Washington State. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just thinking out aloud here. I, I, I could be talking out of my backside here, but <laughs> it, it, you, when, you, when you look at it from an operational point of view, they, they do seem to make sense. So yeah. if it is going with a, a new wide body uh, after the 787, uh, you know, then that could be, you know, a very prudent move in their in their acquisition, even though it's cost them a few billion dollars to do it. But when you look at the eventual marketplace that they're actually gunning for. You know, you're, you're talking almost, uh, you know, 1,100 7s out there. There's still upwards of, you know, eight or 900 747s that are still flying, uh, A380s as well, and including, you know, A350 and 787s. It's, a, it's an absolutely phenomenal market in terms of volume for wide bodies that a potential 777 replacement could be looking to uh, supplant. Interesting concept, and uh, yeah, it's, it's got a. There's a couple of a couple of things coming together there that, uh, yeah, has me going. Uh huh. This could be true. Again, I mean, much of it is guesswork, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of this also comes into uh, Boeing strategic thinking. Thinking at some point. Uh, so it's probably just before we wrap it up. And uh, speaking of Airbus and um, perhaps uh, an offshoot of them, uh, we've seen we've seen the first flight of the uh, the A400M, the military transport aircraft, since we spoke to you last. Uh, what what news can yeah. you tell us about that? Well, the, the uh, discussions will be going on uh, this week about uh, whether funding will be made available for the A400M. Uh, I was having a talk uh, with uh, one of my very good colleagues a few days ago, Howard Wilden, in uh, Swanky Pub, and uh, <laughs> he, um, uh, the, the, you know, the defence industry in Europe, and and he's been dis- uh, covering defence in Europe for the last 30, 35 years. And if anybody knows European defence better than him, then I haven't met anyone <laughs> just yet. But we we kind of both agree that the A400M will get the funding that is required. Europe cannot go this far to create a viable C-17, C-130 uh, competitor and then have it drop at the last circle. And for all the comments that uh, Tom Anders has made about the impact, uh, you know, we have to remember that Germany, his native country, is the biggest, uh, you know, uh, buyer of this. And I suspect some hook or by truck, they will make funding available and the A400M will live uh, to fight on another day. I think the interesting thing, rather than the A400, 
them is the impact it's going to have on the C-17 because that cannot survive on export orders alone. You know, they've got the funding for through the end of this year and they've got a few orders from the RAF and even the UAE. Uh, the, the real interesting thing is going to be is whether any of these A400M customers uh, sit on the sidelines and wait for the A400M or whether they put their money where their mouth is and spend even more money on the C-17. So uh, all of this uh, defense circle is very inextricably linked and, and as bizarre as it sounds to say, uh, the A400M and C-17 do have a finite linkage between their survivability, particularly when the A400M is still several years away from first delivery. Well, we see that the only real major nation, I guess, south of the equator that did have an order in for them was South Africa, and uh, they cancelled their order last year. They had an order for eight, which they've now cancelled. Yeah, and I I suspect the European uh, nations will not cancel their orders. They've already said that they don't want to cut down their orders to reflect the repricing of the uh, A400M because of its cost overruns. You know, Germany has made firm that, you know, we signed a fixed price contract and we want to stick to that and we want our 80 or however many A400Ms it is for the price we agreed to pay for it. And I suspect that that's what will happen. And the uh, A400M stands at around about 44 billion US dollars in cost at the moment. They'll get another 8 or 10 billion dollars to plug in the gap that they need to get this airplane delivered. And I suspect it will be built at any cost. Uh, Europe has a vested interest in its own defense industry. And we see that with them making their vibes about the you know the KCX tanker competition as well. I just cannot see why it would be plausible that they would ax the A400M before it's even ended service. Perhaps if it happened after it entered service, yes, that is something that could be considered. You know, it happened with you know with other military airframes. It's happened with commercial airframes. So the A400M will still live to fight on another day, I think. And the uh, the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, we've reported recently, has uh, had their KC30s uh, up there in uh, Spain doing some uh, some certification on the uh, fuel delivery systems there. So uh, that all seems to be going pretty well from what we hear. Yeah, it seems to be going well, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, that too has been significantly delayed and hindered by you know uh, you know Airbus's changes to the way the boom operates, center of gravity issues, and fuel offload rates. So there's, there's still a lot of uh, you know parameters that need to be tested. And only this week, you know, the, one of the German uh, finance ministers or somebody commented on India's decision to cancel their contract for six A330 tankers as uh, as a shock. So uh, clearly, you know, the, the, the A4 the A330 tanker is working in terms of what it will do for the Australian Royal Air Force, but it's not everything to every operator, and uh, that is one of the challenges that Airbus is going to face within the next few years as it kind of works towards tailoring tankers towards Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, and other such nations. So uh, just because it's working well for the Australians doesn't mean to say the overall program is working very well. We've seen on the A400M that the South Africans are prepared to wait. We've seen on the A330 that the Indians are prepared to wait, and so there is still a lot that can go wrong. Well, Sarge, we probably ought to leave it there. It's uh, probably getting on for lunchtime over in your part of the world, I would guess. Uh, folks, the website is uh, fleetbuzzeditorial.com. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, mate. We really appreciate it. No problem. Pleasure. Pleasure as always. Look forward to speaking with you guys again. G'day, this is Owens Up. Join me in May 2010 as I trek around Australia in a Jabiru 230 to celebrate the centenary of powered flight down under and in the process raise vital funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Check out my website and follow my progress at www.thereandback.com.au. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the in-flight service with Grant and Steve on Playing Crazy Down Under. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. 
Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. That is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. At PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. And welcome back, folks. Gee whiz, that was another uh, long interview and a, a really fascinating one. Some uh, interesting uh, news there, and uh, particularly on the Jetstar front, getting those new engines. That seems to have generated a bit of interest up there in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, well, it is a pretty big order, and uh, you know, it's an indication that, the, as we were discussing, that extra 1% makes a big difference. Yeah, it certainly does. So, uh, yeah, Sarge, a huge thanks to Sarge Ahmed. Uh, we, um, thanks to a few uh, mistakes on my part, we almost didn't get that interview because <laughs> I'd, I'd got the time zones wrong again. Oh, mate, there's timeanddate.com works really well. Yeah, yeah, I should start looking at stuff. Or better still, I'll just let you organise things. It always works better when you do. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> but, uh, look, though, there was it was a good good chat despite some uh, quality issues with the sound and uh, the fact that we stomped on each other a few times sorry about that mate um, no, oops right. yeah, a little bit of a little bit of lag on the internet tonight as we record this but uh, yeah um, we'll uh, look forward to uh, talking to Sarge we probably plan to talk to him again uh, probably three or four episodes from now and um, have a bit more of a chat about all things airlines and airline news he's uh, really plugged into the uh, world of purchases and, and the, re- the really technical side of it which is why we uh, really enjoy talking to him yeah no definitely it's a lot of fun to have a have a chat with Sarge and I always learn something new, which is great. Excellent, mate, excellent. I'll oh, we'll just finish it off there and uh, there's a bit of noise. What's that noise? Oh. Good Lord, ah. Granite. It's midnight. Is that posty still around? We have our maddest posty in the world here. Yeah, it's lucky, he, po- does, lucky he doesn't sorry? make too much noise. My dog would go berserk if he made too much noise. Oh, I tell you what, he's better than Postman Pat. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> there you go. Well, Grant, I should give you a... Uh, hang on, hang on. Listener mail. <laughs> <laughs> How professional was that, mate? Except today, it's not really listener mail, it's more forum time. Yeah, well, I'm not shaking my laptop, no matter how much you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we need a special sound effect for the forum, like a whole lot of uh, Roman senators. Yeah, so I right. thought we'd uh, we'd uh, grab a little bit of, uh, not so much listener mail this week, but uh, some discussions that have been popping up on our uh, forum there on downwind.com.au. Either visit the website directly, or you can click on the link off our website. One thread that was started there that we thought we should pay some uh, extra special attention to uh, was started by our friend who goes by the name of uh, Turb Coriolis. Hey Turb. Hey. And it brings up the very important subject of uh, podcasters beer. Now anybody who knows me knows that I don't drink a lot and particularly not beer. However. I make up for him don't worry. Yeah he certainly does and um, (laughs) truth comes out eventually. People who know me know. I didn't know you were an alcoholic to you. I saw you sober one day. Anyway. Hey mate I'm, I'm a firm believer of that rule. Eight feet bottle to throttle. Anyway, I digress. Most of the uh, big US aviation podcasts that we listen to, I guess uh, most notably would be UCAP, are uh, usually powered most nights by Lineys or Leinenkugel's beer. So the uh, the question there was put by Turb. He, he says here that 
he notes that all US podcasters bang on about Liney's beer as being necessary. Never heard of it before, but uh, and he pops a link in there to Line and Kugel. So uh, I'd never seen uh, that sort of beer over here in any of the local bottle shops. So I thought uh, I'll just go straight to the source. Uh-huh. And uh, I shot them an email over there at Line and Kugels. And they actually answered. Yeah, we got a response back uh, in about 24 hours, which was uh, very much appreciated uh, from uh, Diane Schindler there, who's the uh, customer communications supervisor at Liney Lodge in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. And uh, she tells me that, unfortunately, they don't sell anywhere outside the US, their products. Ooh. Which is a bit of a disappointment. Uh, I did try to con her into sending some over here, but uh, I guess that would be uh, not really feasible through the postal service. It is a bit tricky to get bottles through intact. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, look, it's it was a it was a good little thread. It didn't go for a huge number of pages, like a whole two. But uh, yeah, we had uh, Turb uh, cutting in with a couple of comments about uh, the extra tiger stout, and uh, you know, sure it hasn't been made for a hundred years, but never let that get in the way of a good story. Yeah. But uh, the other one I liked that he sent was the make your own beer link. So that, that's something we might actually have to do a uh, road road trip to check out. But uh, and then uh, Grand Vizier over in New Zealand was talking about the Wigram brewing company and uh, my father used to fly out of Wigram when he was learning and that's something that uh, Grand Vizier comments on is like that was where the uh, Kiwi Air Force did their flight training when they used to have an Air Force he says uh, <laughs> oops but uh, yeah no it was it was pretty good uh, Vizier also mentioned uh, the uh, Arrogant Bastards Ale which uh, runs at about 7.2% alcohol so I just had to trump him there and talked about uh, the uh, Delirium Tremens a Belgian pale ale which runs at 8.5% alcohol by volume it's, it's wonderful it's uh, in a ceramic bottle with pink elephants on it so uh, mm. yeah I um, had that a few times down at the Lambsgo bar many years ago here in Fitzroy so uh, it, it was a good little thread lots of lots of beers and um, discussions about uh, beers and podcasting yeah we haven't got a response there from Jeff Ward uh, Scoffridget who does the uh, show notes and uh, disclaimer clips I think does he for the guys uh, he, do, he does the show notes for UCAP yeah so uh, I was really thrilled to have him here on our forum that's fantastic but he was just saying that uh, you know the, the beer is produced quite close to uh, Oshkosh there in Wisconsin so uh, that's obviously why it's so popular with the uh, aviation podcasters up there and uh, he makes a very good point here that uh, seeing as uh, aviation podcasters argu- arguably represent the extreme of the type Line and Kugel Brewery has a free viral advertising system <laughs> yeah I liked his comment about Pavlovian response yeah. if you encounter a Lineys, you think of Oshkosh if you're Oshkosh you think of Lineys. hmm there you go <laughs> so, uh, awesome well Grant awesome. yet another reason for us to travel to Oshkosh I don't like our chances of that this year however <sighs> I know I know well, uh, we'll, I, just, I, we'll just make have... him another commercial Grant we'll just make him another commercial oh wait I haven't found the, I haven't found a, um, a bank I can knock off. I haven't won the lotto. My cunning plans are just all falling apart. Yeah, they do. And just for the record, folks, um, if if Plane Crazy Down Under is ever being produced with a beer at this end of the microphone, it's light beer, usually Cascade or uh, Bogues. Nice Tasmanian uh, beer. <laughs> and yes, if there's a beer at this end, the odds are I'm not crewing or flying the next day. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, and again, the attacks get a lot more entertaining as the night goes on. <laughs> <laughs> that much is certain. Yeah. So we'll just leave the uh, listener mail there this week, uh, plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com, folks, if you'd like to send us an email, and we'd certainly love to hear from you. Or if you want to join in the discussion, hop on to the uh, Plain Crazy Down Under forum area on the downwind.com.au site. Uh, as Steve said earlier, you can go straight to downwind.com.au and have an explore around there and go to Pilots Forum as one of the options that the site offers. Or you can uh, link directly to our section of the forum from the button on our site at the top right. So, uh, moving on, Grant. Speaking of which, take a drink. Hey! Yeah. 
So we're going oh. to be yes, it's shout outs time, folks. As we uh, come to the end of this episode, that sounded like a celebratory shout out, not just a shout out. Yeah, well, it uh, sounds like there's a bit to uh, celebrate here. Uh, well, yeah, we've got a couple of uh, major achievements uh, occurred since our last podcast was released, and the first one up is uh, ladies first, of course, is that Ms. Dark Sarcasm, aka Jennifer Barry, went solo. Uh, yeah, that's right. Congratulations, Jen. Woohoo! She took a Jabiru solo out at Lilydale, and uh, we're all very happy for her. And uh, <clears throat> I must admit, somewhat jealous because she's getting flying time, and I'm stuck on the ground. Yeah. But <clears throat> yes, but uh, you can follow all her exploits in a Need for Airspeed. That's her blog, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But it's a Need for Airspeed and that's an excellent blog too, folks. So we've just been cruising around it, having a look. She's really constructed that well and it's got some fantastic articles on there. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to follow uh, Jen's uh, adventures as she uh, moves through her ratings and uh, her flying training, uh, yeah, certainly follow that that uh, blog, a need for airspeed.wordpress.com. Now, yeah. Grant, our, uh, our good friend David Optimal up there in Sydney. Uh, David, well, we'll just give a... Uh, yes, there we are. Also, a big shout out to David. David, uh, recently this week, in fact, passed his instructor's rating. So he's now a grade three instructor. And folks, he's looking for a job. Yep. There's a grade three instructor with, uh, I think he's got multi-engine and instrument, and he's out there looking for work. Uh, We're going to see what we can do to help him get intros and travel around down here in Melbourne. But uh, yeah, give the man a job. Woohoo! Yeah, excellent. He's only a young fella too, and uh, he's uh, come over. He's uh, originally from uh, Barcelona. Oh, Grant, that's you right. say it. You say it so much better than I do. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. He's from Barcelona. There you go. What and, he said. Uh, yeah, so you can learn to fly with him and learn Spanish. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Probably, I, I just learned my Spanish from you, Grant. Oh, Grant's teaching me how to order coffee in Spanish. That's all I need to know. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. I'm being polite. Yeah, but there you go. Uh, so uh, a huge rep there to David. Um, he's, he's really racking those ratings up as he goes. And actually, uh, just following, um, following him on Facebook this morning, uh, he's actually gone off and done a trial instructional flight. Uh, today in a helicopter so yeah speaking of jealousy yeah no that's what i said on the i said something like that in a reply what me jealous you must be kidding so excellent so uh yeah if anybody wants to uh, get a hold of david uh, they can contact us here at the podcast and we'll certainly pass your details on okay next grant robert sigliano the new pilot podlog that's correct uh, robert flies out of long island in uh in the new york area of the u.s northeastern quadrant and uh yeah he's um, did do a lot of flying on a diamond and then moved across to uh uh, LSAs because it was more what he was flying. He was mostly flying just himself and one other and uh, it was a lot cheaper and a lot more fun to zip around the place. So uh, he's taking his son flying and uh, he's reporting on it. He's got a podcast which is a lot of fun to listen to because uh, Robert's gone, well, there's podcasts about learning. There's podcasts about already being an experienced pilot. But what about that first hundred hours? And so he's mapped out some goals for himself of what to do in his first hundred hours as he builds time and, and uh, builds experience and becomes a better pilot. And and uh, he's setting goals so that he actually achieves something every flight. And uh, yeah, each episode is pretty cool for what you get to hear from his thinking about it and uh, how he's going about his flight and what his goals are and so on. It's, it's a great little podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, episode number six here is the latest, the, uh, latest one he's put out. And um, so the title of it is My First $100 Hamburger. So uh, yeah, we've <laughs> all, I think we've all done that, particularly when you're in the States where it's uh, so much easier to get around and fly to various different places. Probably a little easier than it is down here in this part of the world. So yeah, the $100 Hamburger, fantastic. I remember doing that myself back in the day. Yeah, uh, I haven't really done a $100 Hamburger here. Um, couldn't get it that cheap. Yeah, over here it'll be about a $5,000 Hamburger. <laughs> I'll so, let you know. I'm, I'm trying to cook a couple of things up on that today. 
do a hamburger run later in, in February or so. Okay, moving across to our friends at the Mile High Flyers podcast and uh, Ziola, she's been talking us up over there in Hawaii, Grant. Yeah, that's right. Ziola is from Hawaii. She's now living in, in the Denver area and uh, I note that uh, she's suddenly discovering that density altitude calculations are now so much more important when you're <laughs> over a mile high on the ground. <laughs> that runway suddenly becomes, starts to look a lot shorter when it's a warm day way up there. So, uh, yeah, she... Ziola's having a lot of fun uh, in the Mile High Flyers, and uh, she also listens to our podcast. Uh, obviously, uh, the lady has no taste at all if she's listening to us, but uh, she's decided that she kind of likes our uh, Aussie accents, which is... So she must have a hearing impediment as well. <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. I find it kind of amusing because I quite like her accent, but uh, she has mentioned us to her lady pilot friends over in Hawaii and uh, said, hey, listen to this if you want to hear some sexy Aussie accents. So she must be meaning Matt Hall and Owen's up and all the other guys we've interviewed, but uh, what more can one say but go go Aussie accent power I didn't even know we had an accent Grant I thought we talked right normal over here mate absolutely yeah so that's I'll just put on my big radio voice here Grant uh oh good evening I'm very scared now. <laughs> are you using the big voice yes I am <laughs> there you are ladies <laughs> Just don't look at the photos of us, okay? That's Listen right. to the voices. Don't look at the photos. I said We've that got... to her on Twitter, actually. Grant, I said, just don't show her a picture of our face. I've got a great face for radio. Yeah, I know, but she said they're all geeks. They know how to look on the website. Damn it. <laughs> oh, bugger. Well, We're cool. doomed. Yeah, we better take the... We'll take... Just Can you just remove the About Us thing from our website for a couple of weeks? Yeah, I'll... Give me a couple of seconds. I'll find some better photos, you know, like, ooh, yes, Mr. October. We'll put him in. <laughs> Our last shout-out this week uh, comes in the form of a thanks. We've had a uh, very generous donation from a, an anonymous listener up in Canberra. Well, he doesn't want his name mentioned, so we uh, will certainly respect that. But uh, to that listener up there, uh, he sent us $100, and uh, that's just really humbling, really flattering, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So to that person, and uh, we have uh, corresponded back and forth uh, by email with him a couple of times, Grant. Yep. And a uh, very, very generous person, so uh, thanks so much for that. Yeah, it's going to take me ages to drink that. Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, too late. No. I've already spent it. Oh, uh, you didn't look in the account, did you? No, oh. I didn't. <laughs> uh, just, just ignore that line that says, um, you know, recreational activity. Anyhow, no, uh, but... No, seriously, uh, that money is going towards our Perth fund, uh, trying to make sure we can get over there and um, get our uh, media credentials and have a lot of fun over there reporting for you about the uh, the Red Bull Air Race and meeting up with all the pilots. That's the goal. We're trying to make it happen. We'll see how we go. I have a funny feeling it's going to be Steve over there and me back here gnashing my teeth, but uh, we'll see what we can do. But definitely major thanks to Mr. Anonymous from Canberra. That was an enormous amount to receive. It uh, totally blew our minds. We're very happy with that. Thank you very much. Yeah. We hadn't had a donation for a little while, so we were, you know, the, the fund was running a little low. Uh, we do have to cover our costs here on the podcast, and uh, we're also looking at uh, making available some uh, advertising space for anybody who might like to advertise their business. We can throw a commercial together for you if you like, or you can bring your own, or however you would like to do it, and uh, it's the, uh, the cheapest advertising you'll ever get, folks. So if you'd like to uh, place a commercial here on the podcast, you've uh, heard us run a few that we've made ourselves, and a few that have been made uh, far more professionally. So, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, that you, professional uh, bit helps. Yeah, yeah so if you're, uh, you're running a business here, of course, it's a very targeted audience. Uh, you know, everybody that listens to this program is uh, interested in some way, either in our 
our wonderful Australian accents <coughs> or uh, aviation. <coughs> yes, or both. <laughs> yeah, so uh, certainly if you'd uh, be interested in uh, running a commercial here on the podcast, fire us off an email there, plancrazydownunder at gmail.com, and uh, we'll certainly be happy to talk to you. In, in the meantime, if you'd like to send us a donation, you can do that too. <laughs> All donations very gratefully appreciated. Absolutely. Well, that's everything we have for you this week on Plan Crazy Down Under. Grant, that's been a, uh, a long episode in the making. It's been a long time coming, but it's uh, going to uh, probably be quite a long episode to listen to. Thanks to everyone who stuck it out to the end, and uh, it's I reckon it's worth it. Yes, it can take more than just one drive to the office to listen. Hi, guys. But uh, what the heck? It's been a while since we put one out, so we'd rather give you more than try and artificially trim it down. And there's still lots more coming up. We've got some more interviews that I'm organizing at the moment. We've uh, probably got a couple more sessions heading out to the suburbs to visit the guys that we uh, recently visited. That will go on, a, on an episode pretty soon. And, uh, yeah, all sorts of other good stuff coming up for the year. Yeah, so uh, we'll... we'll attempt to get some episodes out a little bit more frequently than we have been doing we uh, did plan to get this one out about two weeks ago but there you go yeah just sorry it was it was just a, a pretty insane time i was crewing balloons morning and night so not a lot of time for sleep not a lot of time for uh, anything other than just getting on with life and recovering so there you go for what grant's saying is it's all his fault thanks <laughs> me and my big mouth i fell into that one now and don't forget folks if you'd like to catch up with us on uh, other podcasts and hear us be a little bit more uh, zany than what we are here you can always catch Catch our Australia Desk segment on the Airplane Geek Show. You can also listen to the other content on the Airplane Geek Show if you like. Yeah, cause you, sometimes you have to just to get to the Ausdesk because, you know, it's it's in a different spot each time. It's not always the same distance and you can't just fast wind. You do need to listen. Yeah, we have to let those guys record a little bit of US-based content just to keep them happy. Yeah, yeah. We, we sort of have to play with the equipment and, you know, what we can get away with. It's always fun pushing the boundaries. Folks, we'll be back in uh, the next week or two with another episode. But until then, just remember this. It's What's Down Under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. And we're live. Hey, look at that. Steady red light. Whoa, steady red light. Steady red. Good. Steady red. 
Okay, mate, uh, moving away from the helicopter scene and moving across to our good friends at... Oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on, got to find a centre What will we have this week, mate? Cha-ching. The number... Ah, let's start that again. Sorry, dude. Okay. Uh, the government wants to bring uh, those... Oh, yeah. I know, there was something you said before, but I forgot to make a note and I've forgotten what I was going to say. Uh, it says here that uh, from uh, December, so that it'd be... Oh, well that, how long is this article before we go on? Okay, we'll leave that one there. And uh, while we're still over in New Zealand, uh, Grant, we've got a bit of a sad story here. We've, uh, we're going to report here on the uh, the death of a Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot with their... Uh, dis- Oops. Hello. How are you going? I'm right in the middle of recording, mate. What's up? <laughs> are you at work? Okay, give me about uh, half an hour. Cheers, mate. Where was I? I guess in the immediate short term, you know, with the um, the arrival soon uh, this year, in fact, of the um, the F thirty five F Super Hornets, that's they're still an awesome aircraft. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Arrival of the F eighteen F. What did I say? F thirty five. Do idiot. you want to start that again? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll be back after this break. Woohoo! And I'll be cutting that out too. <laughs> yeah, he certainly does. And uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I, Grant? 